Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. It's really a team effort. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Andy Joint. Andy is the head brewer at Big Grove. As a beer nerd and fan of Big Grove, it was a joy to talk with Andy and discuss his craft and approach. Andy has been the head brewer at Big Grove since 2016 and oversaw the build-out of the production brewery at their Iowa City location. When we recorded this episode, Andy and team were in the middle of another major uh, production expansion. Andy and I explore his path to becoming a brewer and the experience of being the head brewer in a time of rapid expansion. We cover learning, creativity, craft, and collaboration, really a modern extension of the Iowa idea. I appreciated Andy's approach to testing and feedback early in his journey to improve his craft, as well as his descriptions of the collaborative team approach at Big Grove. I'd like to thank Andy for joining me on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Andy, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, could you tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Matt, for having me on. Uh, excited to chat today. Uh, yeah, my name's Andy Joint, and I'm the head brewer here at Big Grove Brewery. Um, we have uh, two brewing locations. We have a production facility here in Iowa City, uh, and then we also have a small brew pub where we started Big Grove up in uh, Solon, Iowa. Great. And how long have you been the head brewer? I am in a little over four years now. I've been the head brewer here. Um, and I got to say, it's been quite a wild ride from uh, what, what we started with to where we're at now. We're, uh, we're actually in the midst of an expansion right this minute. Uh, I just got a call earlier today that uh, we will be receiving some new tanks uh, starting Thursday morning. So, right. And do you have to, uh, is there space space for them already or do you have to kind of rearrange the, the, the brewery setup? It has been the most interesting uh, expansion we've done. You know, we've added tanks a couple different times now, but uh, this time we had to, to really work hard to make the footprint available for the new ones. Um, so we actually had a, it's kind of one of those early mistakes where we thought we had so much space. Um, some of the original fermenters that we set up were kind of loosely spaced apart and <clears throat> not pulled up as close to the wall as they could be. So we actually had to go back and, and move all of those, um, which is quite the undertaking because we couldn't we couldn't not use them, you know, all for a period of time. So we had to kind of, I actually had the plumbers come in and do like some temporary uh, plumbing for the chilling to the tanks. So as we emptied one, we could pull it down and then kind of work our way down the row until we got them all pulled in tight. That's wild. How much, uh, now with these new tanks, how much more production will that allow your team? Uh, so it's, it gives us about 40% more capacity. So we're bringing in um, seven additional fermenters and then a couple additional bright tanks as well. So it's really, in addition to that capacity, it's also really reshaping kind of the flow of our, of our brewery and the, and the space we're in. Um, I mean, we had to move the canning line as well from where it was sitting to kind of, we removed some of the storage where we were storing dry goods and moved the canning line up closer to the very edge of the room. Um, and then, like I said, we we're tightening up all the other tanks and it's just kind of changes some of the, the pathways you have to get around the building. So a lot of things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> Backing up a little bit, how did you become interested in uh, brewing? Yeah. So, you know, my history with craft beer goes back to Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm an Iowa City guy. I, I grew up here. I graduated from West High School. Uh, but after, after high school, I went out to Colorado State in Fort Collins and attended school there. And when I moved out there in the early 2000s, there was a couple of breweries. Uh, there were several breweries in town, but New Belgium and Odell Brewing were two, two big ones that were really growing fast and a big part of the culture in Fort Collins. So, you know, when you go to, when you go to college parties at, at that time, you'd find Fat Tire would be the keg <laughs> beer or maybe East Street Wheat from Odell. 
Um, and so I got excited about, you know, beer styles I'd never really been introduced to before. And after that, you know, I got excited about brewing it myself. And so me and a, a buddy started home brewing and uh, I just, I never stopped after that. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting to me now, you know, early 2000s, you know, the internet wasn't quite as developed as, as a marketplace as it is now. And even in a, in a brewing community like Fort Collins at that time, there wasn't a homebrew shop. So we actually had to drive down to Boulder to get homebrew supplies and bring them back to Fort Collins. And it's kind of funny because Boulder, you could kind of look at Boulder as one of the epicenters of craft brewing. I mean, that's where the Brewers Association is headquartered and a lot of, a lot of early craft brewing uh, kind of took place in Boulder. So. Yeah. That's interesting. Like you said, uh, in some ways it doesn't feel that long ago, uh, you know, but it's 20 years ago. And then the, the difference of availability of information or even uh, online communities on, you know, like catching up with other home brewers uh, and, or also the availability of buying supplies online, right. And have them shipped directly to your, to your house. Yeah. And you know, the, like the recipe side of it back then was, it was a lot of books. I mean, I think it's still very popular, but like Charlie Papazian's, uh, the complete joy of homebrewing was a huge reference. And then, yeah, we were mostly working out of books. And then if you could, if you could uh, find a brewer in town and ask them some questions, that was a great option as well. Yeah. Would, now would you, uh, would you connect with, with friend, like, I don't know, walk me through kind of like you, you tried a new beer or you're trying a new style and get, would you get your friends to, be guinea pigs and see how it went over yeah and you know a lot of our early stuff we were just you know you're copycatting what you had I, I think it's a great way to start to try and figure out what's going on but you know we were trying to brew our fat tire and then yeah we had a we had a little kegerator in the in the house so we could put our our five gallons on tap and let our friends try it and then uh, sometimes watch their faces when it wasn't back yet. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, it's kind of it's sort of like golf where you hit that one good shot and then you know it kind of brings you back. And right. So I remember one one red ale we made Roscoe Red Ale early on that was really solid, and that was kind of like always the thing that brought you back, even after some less than stellar batches. You're like, yo, but remember Roscoe Red? That one was so good. Yeah, that it's funny that you mentioned that because I use that uh, kind of golf analogy sometimes with my friends is like that you could have 17 bad holes, but there was that one good hole and you're like, I, I, I can't quit yet. I got to <laughs> hold on to that glory. Yeah, you just remember the good stuff, right? <laughs> so what uh, what brought you back to Iowa City? So so I was in school and, you know, me and this buddy had been homebrewing uh, pretty extensively and we were kind of, you know, you see the, the post-college uh, life and you're like, oh, what are we going to do? And uh, I also was enrolled in an entrepreneurship class there at Colorado State. And so as uh, the first project they put on us was to write a business plan. And so I wrote a business plan about opening a brewery in Iowa City. And um, there wasn't really, I don't there was no breweries in Iowa city at that time. You know, this is like I said, 2003, 2004, uh, I think Millstream was rocking out in Amana, yeah. but other than that, there was not a lot going on in the area. And, you know, Fort Collins and Iowa city are both college towns have some, some similar kind of makeup. And I, when I presented that business plan to, to some local business people and, and the, the teaching staff at Colorado state, they were really excited about it and sort of, they encouraged me to pursue it. And uh, so that kind of sparked, really pushed forward the idea um, of like, hey, let's let's move back to Iowa City and uh, let's try and open a brewery there. So me and and my future wife and my buddy and his dog all moved into my parents' basement at that time. Um, and we had grand visions of starting our brewery out of my parents' basement. Um, but the city of Coralville, they weren't as excited about that idea as we were. So. We kind of we kind of stalled on, on yeah. the base of the brewery, but we kept brewing and kind of kind of pushing towards getting things together. We were never me and him were never really able to get that uh, kind of off the ground, um, but I, I couldn't let it go. You know, I kept brewing, and I really I was really thought the beers that I was making were very solid, um, and I you know I had friends who were supporting me through it. You know, I really like to I do blind tastings where I encourage my friends to grab some like national, you know, pale ales or IPAs. And then I'd, I'd pour my stuff and, and just give it all to them blind and see how the results came out. And 
that boosted my confidence as well because my beers were doing pretty good in the in those lineups. Um, so fast forward a, a decade or so, and uh, a mutual friend of one of the primary owners of Big Grove, Matt Swift. Um, there was a mutual friend of me and Matt's that that uh, connected us. Um, the former head brewer of Big Grove was leaving, and Big Grove was you know still running. They were running their Soul and Brew Pub, and they were getting ready to start on the Iowa City project the production brewery here and i sat down with matt and and doug getch uh, one of the other owners and kind of talked about what their vision was for this i told them about what you know the vision i had had a long time ago yeah there was just so much alignment there it just felt it just felt like the right move and i certainly an opportunity that i had to pursue thanks yeah, a question too. I mean, we were talking about the the new the new uh, equipment coming in and what that does to production capacity. <clears throat> what did adding Iowa City initially do to production capacity from just the Solon location? Well, it was. I mean, effectively, it was ten x. Um, okay. Solon is a very small footprint brewery. We're making you know we're making seven barrel batches up there, which is, uh, a barrel is is two. Uh, kegs worth so you know we're making we were making like 10 to 14 kegs of beer in a batch and down here in Iowa City I mean one of these big fermenters you can make you can make 100 to 120 kegs at a time so that's great so yeah it's been uh, imagine just a wild ride on just the the growth of the business alone let alone kind of a, a doing doing something new for you it was yeah it was a you know it was an intense jump to get go from home brewing and you know i knew i think i knew a little bit more than that maybe the average home brewer about professional brewing just having you know kind of looked at it through that business plan and really kind of you know we got went to some of the conferences and we were really shopping the equipment pretty hard so i had a little more uh, i don't know idea about the professional world but jumping into professional brewing at our existing facility in solon and then also starting to build out iowa city and like uh, shop that equipment and make kind of work on the layout of, of the brewery and everything was it was a pretty uh, intense crash course in professional brewing that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, one of one of the questions I have for you uh, you have award winning beers uh, and and what what is that process like to end, do you go to a competition how do you how do you enter a beer into a competition or how does it get recognized I guess. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's a, it's an interesting world. Um, there's several competitions around the country. Um, there's a handful of pretty, pretty big national ones. And then there's a lot of kind of regional ones. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that for me, goes back to my home brewing days where the, the Iowa state fair was always kind of my annual target. And I would, I would time out my brewing. So I had a bunch of batches to enter in the state fair. So I just go through this like flurry of brewing six or eight batches of beer to have them all ready at that time. Um, and luckily now in the professional realm, we're brewing all the time. So it's not really a flurry of activity, but there certainly is, it's kind of a component of, of timing out, you know, your beers to have them, you know, ideally I'm grabbing them off the canning line on, on Monday and shipping them out Monday afternoon. So they get to the competition panel later that week and they're yeah. you know, as fresh as can be. But um, the different competitions have some different rules, but a lot of it's uh, selecting the categories that you want to enter. You know, there's a, a set of guidelines out there for different styles. And so you have to choose, um, you know, what, I don't know, what best beers you think you have and, and what categories you think you can compete in. Um, and then does your beer actually fit the kind of the style guidelines that are in the book? Because, you know, those guidelines aren't regulated. So if I call a beer an IPA, I mean, that's kind of my, that's, that's the, our call, you know, as a brewery, it's not regulated by anybody. So you might look at the guidelines from the, from the industry and it might not actually fit the profile exactly. And, and when they're judging your beers, generally, if you're outside of that, that defined style, then they'll, you, you're not going to score well. So it's a, it, it takes a lot of thought to kind of figure out how to enter your beers and, and how to go through that. And then depending on the competition, you're usually going through several rounds of judging. So they kind of just do the early judging, they'll score you. And if you score well enough, you'll advance to a second round. And de depending on the depth of the category, it may be three, four, even five rounds that you have to pass through. So 
Thanks. Yeah, because one of the things when you were talking about a style, what I always find interesting, whether it's it's music, movies, uh, and in this case, beer, are the like a notion of a genre is like what makes it like it's recognizable as an IPA, but then you know, kind of from a creativity fit, you got to push those boundaries to do something new. Otherwise, we're just drinking the same stuff over and over again. And from a from a brewing standpoint, can you can you talk to me about kind of how you balance almost that uh, the the rules of the road with creativity well i guess you know for us we're kind of i would say that we don't really consider those style guide. well i shouldn't say that we do consider the style guidelines like if i'm putting out an ipa i kind of want it to fit what people you know people buy an ipa so a customer knows what they're getting kind of yeah exactly um but as far as like the actual style guidelines coming from the the judging program we don't worry too much about that. We actually kind of go about it the other way where we'll, we'll have this beer and like, we think it's really good. And then we kind of look at the styles and say, where does it fit? And, okay. you know, maybe it's, maybe we call it an IPA, but it's actually in the style book. It's more of a strong pale ale. You know, it's usually little wrinkles like that, that you're kind of working around. Um, but style wise, I mean, yeah, we try and stay true just so, you know, we make sure we're getting the customer what they expect, but it's, other than that, you know, those, those judging guidelines are kind of after the fact where we come back and evaluate that. Cool. And, they, and as kind of a, a self-proclaimed beer nerd, I, I love what you, guys, what you guys are doing. Like right now for folks doing this kind of spring rolling into summer, you're putting out so many different beers. Like almost each week there's, there's new stuff getting introduced. Can you tell me how you decide, like just the process from – going, hey, this is something new we're going to try to getting it out there and then also seeing what sticks and then what eventually becomes like kind of part of your irregular uh, uh, production. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, more of an art than a science for us where you kind of, you know, you're kind of watching what's selling a little bit. We're certainly getting feedback from from our sales team who's out in the market and, and getting some pretty heavy feedback about what's going on at, at bars and restaurants and, and grocery stores and liquor stores. Um, and then, you know, there's also the kind of the, the brewer's push of like, hey, here's something we want to do. Uh, let's put it out there. And one of the things that's, that works out really well for us is that having the two different breweries, you know, where we have the small brewery in Solon and the big brewery in Iowa City, we kind of can, we can feel things out a little bit. So if we have some kind of a little bit crazier style that maybe doesn't have a following yet, we can put it out of soul and, and, and test the waters a little bit, get it in front of people and, and then kind of move from there. And, you know, if we see, if we see strong feedback on it, if we see a big demand, like um, into the woods is a recent beer. We released a fruited sour that we saw that um, we can, we can adapt pretty quickly and scale it up and, and produce it in Iowa city as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and uh, into the woods just, one man's opinion loved it. It like it's it's a great it's a great summer drink. Thank you. Yeah, and it was one that you know it started out. It was a collaboration we did with Copper Kettle out in Denver, and you know, I went out there and brewed the initial batch with them, and then it was for a, a collaboration festival that was going to take place in Denver in April that ultimately didn't happen. But um, then we were like, well, we had plenty of time, so we figured we should. Uh, they don't distribute here. We figured it'd be cool to, to brew a batch up in Seoul and then release it in this market as well during that same time period. And when we released it here, it just, it, it caught us off guard a little bit. People were, got really excited about it and there's just a lot of demand. And that batch, that first batch out of Seoul and sold out very quickly. So uh, we were, we decided immediately that we should just brew a batch in Iowa City and, and go full scale with it. And it's, yeah, it's developed a, a great following really quickly. And, you know, that beer, there's a, I think it, it turned out a really nice beer. And the backstory is really fun for us, too. I mean, it, it started with that collaboration and kind of the, the nexus for that collaboration was um, we had a, a graphic designer, um, Anna Long, that was she was working on the staff here at Big Grove, uh, I don't know, three years ago, I believe. And she was she was uh, working in the front of house and also doing some graphic design for us. Um, and after she graduated school, she moved out to Denver uh, and ended up getting a job at Copper Kettle as their graphic designer. So when they were throwing around ideas for this collaboration festival about who to work with, um, Anna brought up Big Grove and 
you know, she was excited to kind of get her two breweries together to do something. Uh, and then she designed that into the woods label, which I thought was just phenomenal. It's just beautiful. And it was just, yeah, just a really fun project. And one of the, one of the cool things that, that happens more often than you might think in the craft beer, craft brewing world. Yeah, that thanks because you know a big theme for the podcast is collaboration, and I, I I like the the connections that you just highlighted there. And a side note too, I'm also just a big fan of uh, Big Grove's overall design aesthetic, and um, from your from your logo to the treatment to uh, you know even even the look of the painted cans are are great. How much how much influence do you have on on like the way it's presented, or how much is the marketing team working on that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's um, different beers kind of shaped differently. Um, it's something that that side of it, the label side of it is definitely uh, probably a lot more time invested in that than, than a lot of people from outside might realize. Um, and so I kind of, we try and give, the brewers try and give the marketing team a hard time about like, yeah, we'll have this beer ready in two weeks, no problem. <laughs> like, what, are you guys going to get your stuff done? Yeah. <laughs> Just labels. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it depends. We, we do have a, a group of, uh, you know, our, we have a graphic designer uh, on staff here and then Matt Swift, uh, one of the owners, he's a big part of the, of the label development and the name development. Um, the sales team gets involved too. And it, it just depends on the beer. Different beers uh, kind of get inspired from different angles. I mean, we're always trying to use the ingredients if we can, or maybe the process. Um, anything we can kind of generate a story out of that, that, you know, ties to the beer, but we definitely, the brew team tries to uh, get names through as we call it, where we, yeah. <laughs> I usually, you know, we'll throw a working title on a beer as we're making it and, and kind of putting it through the process. And sometimes the working titles just uh, become the name of the beer. And so we always chalk that up as a win. <laughs> Cool. Thanks. Uh, talking about the uh, collaboration that you had mentioned that maybe folks aren't, aren't aware of some of the collaboration that goes on amongst brewers and breweries. Uh, one of the things that I thought was a really special story in folks reacting to kind of the, our current COVID situation was the all together, uh, uh, project. Do you mind talking a little bit about, uh, what that project is and how it came together? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the Altogether project was something, um, it was started by Other Half Brewing in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And it was something that they they kind of just came up with the concept. Um, it's, I don't know if you want to call it an open source uh, kind of project where they just said, hey, we did, we've got artwork for you. Um, we're going to put out this recipe and we just, we're just looking for people to get involved. And it was just a way for, for brewers and craft brewers to kind of generate income uh and and goodwill honestly to kind of help the hospitality industry through a very difficult time and as soon as i saw the post about it that they that they were putting this project together i was i was all over it i thought this was a great opportunity um to, to kind of help out and you know make the best of, of a challenging time so as soon as we saw that we got the ball rolling and um kind of worked with the, the other half crew a little bit they had they, they had a really polished project, you know, they made it very easy for people to jump in. And I don't know what the count's at now, but I, I know they had breweries across the world that participated in the project. And I want to say it was five, 600 breweries maybe that were participating. But, you know, we went, uh, we went with a, a full batch out of Iowa City here. Um, and we were donating $5 for every four pack that we sold. We'll be going to the, to the Iowa Restaurant Association uh, to their relief fund. Um, so, yeah, I think at the end of the day, we should be looking at about $15,000 that'll, that'll get contributed out of that project. So that's great. Thanks. Yeah, that's such a cool story. Yeah. And, you know, there's some other layers too where this industry is, is just got kind of a great attitude towards things like this. So that we had um, some hop suppliers that jumped on board to donate some hops to the project, uh, Yakima Chief, uh, and then also some malt suppliers uh, that jumped in too and said, hey, we'll throw some, some grain your way to help kind of generate some more income for this. So it was just a, an industry wide collaboration and very cool to see. Yeah. And I actually heard about it from a friend in, in Chicago. Uh, he and his wife, uh, they're huge beer fans and really on top of all the, all the craft brewing things that are going on in Chicago and they can like, you know, can, 
here, here's who's doing what, this collaboration. And yeah, it was through them that they said, have you heard about Altogether? Big Grove's doing it. And then, yeah, and then went back to the website and saw that and picked some up. So I was really excited, uh, both both about the project and, and the beer tasted good too. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, the other layer is you get someone else's recipe in your hands and, you know, everybody brews a little differently or has different equipment or whatever. And so you always want to make sure you, uh, you do right by them when you, uh, when you put a beer together like that. But yeah, I thought it turned out great. Uh, very drinkable. So one of the things I want to talk about too, we talk about collaboration and sometimes uh, healthy competition among teams too. And I know uh, at Big Grove, you guys have great beer, but you also have a, a pretty interesting kitchen and you got uh, uh Great chef running things there. Do you mind talking a little bit about some of the the competitive side of putting out good beer and good food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so our executive chef is Ben Smart here at Big Grove, and uh, you know he's he's a world class chef. He he trained out in Seattle at the herb farm out there, and he was kind of you know he's from Iowa City as well, and was looking to get back here and and kind of set up. And he just puts out some amazing food. Um, and I, I don't know, I give him a hard time now and then, but we're always, you know, we're always kind of competing in a good way where I want people to come to Big Grove for the beer. Uh, and Ben wants them to come to Big Grove for the food. And <laughs> I think, I think that can work out great for the customer if we're uh, <laughs> both kind of competing that way. Cause uh, you know, he's a very competitive kind of fiery guy. We're both, we both have this in the zone uh, kind of look when when we're doing our thing and and on the floor, and uh, but yeah, it's it's good. It's it leads to some inspiration as well. Um, just you know, sometimes we'll be the brew staff will be wandering into the kitchen and and asking the guys like, hey, you know, do you have this ingredient or or maybe you know asking them for flavor concepts for a new beer we're trying to develop or maybe even the process side of it of like, how could we get this flavor into the beer? And it's a, it's a great relationship. And it, I think it pushes uh, both departments to, to get better at what they do. Cool. And how do, do you guys talk specifically about my, what might be good pairings too between beers that you're doing or platings yeah. of, of special menu stuff? We do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it'll, you know, can kind of go both ways where maybe we're approaching the kitchen and saying, Hey, we're going to be releasing this special beer. Can you guys come up with a cool food or, or, you know, dessert or something to pair with that? Or it might be the other way around where they're doing a food special and, and looking for a beer to, to go with it. So it's uh we get to, into a lot of fun discussions and, and a lot of creative sessions when we, when we go through all of that. Cool. Uh, talking about like special beers that you're doing, can you walk me through what drives some of the seasonality in, you know, like for some beers where it's only available during a limited time, just kind of what, what drives that and how do you handle kind of a looking at a calendar? Uh, yeah, that's, you know, we look a few different ways. Um, one can be certainly ingredient based where, you know, if we're looking to work with, uh, fruits and, or vegetables or that sort of thing, we can kind of look at the, the calendar and see when those harvests are coming down. Um, we do, we do some like, uh, barrel aged wild sours. And so we love using fresh fruit to, to execute some of those projects. Um, and it's, that's one where I've found a, a good source. We've worked a little bit with, uh, Paul, uh, over at Wilson's, uh, Wilson's orchard there. Yeah. Um, he's got, I guess his family goes back in the fruit game a long time. And so they've got farms up in Michigan and, and all over the place. So he's kind of my contact where, you know, I'll reach out and say, Hey Paul, when, you know, when are the blueberries coming down or the peaches, yeah. whatever. And, and then we'll try and time out a brew to, to coordinate with that. Um, and it, it leads to some great results as far as kind of more our, our overall, our, all uh, beer schedule. It's really, it's a juggling act a little bit. Um, you know, certain styles kind of fit certain times of the year better. You know, so we might be looking to hit the stouts a little harder as the weather cools off. Certainly during the summertime, you know, uh, lighter beers and kind of citrus forward beers, that kind of thing is is what people are looking for during the patio season. So we certainly feature that. Um, but it can also often be like a juggling of tank space where it's, you know, during the peak production period, we might not be able to do a lot of one-off or or uh, new stuff. We kind of got to stick to the core beer 
and then as we get outside of those peak production periods we can we can do a little bit more new stuff and creative things so that was where we've done a series uh called the haze apocalypse uh or it was called hazier things this year that was like a a series of uh, hazy double ipas they got released every few weeks that one the timing of that kind of got slotted into when we would have the tanks and to be able to execute that and then also we're just kind of looking at a quieter period of beer sales and we thought it'd be kind of a fun project that would get people excited and, and kind of motivated to get out there and, and buy some four packs so so do you have like uh, in, in my mind i'm imagining like a big slotted schedule that you have about like when a tank's available how long something's going to sit in there uh right because you're you're trying to maximize from a business side maximize that those aren't sitting empty but, but yeah, how, how, how do you do that juggling act? It's a lot of, it's a lot of revisions, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we have kind of a, like a, the big schedule, you know, the big annual schedule where we've got some major things that, you know, we're going to do this now. Um, and then we kind of look, once we've established that, we'll start looking at it from a quarterly approach where we'll say, okay, you know, based on a tank availability, we might be able to slot these things in um, and kind of move from there. And then, you know, this is where having the Solon Brewery makes us so nimble and able to do so many things we want to. He's not, you know, that brewery's not really tied to, to any specific schedule. So that's really like, I don't know, we're probably looking three weeks, maybe a month out and just really adapting to what the sales team needs or what, you know, maybe what the breweries need on tap or, you know, if we get some crazy idea, that's, we pursue it uh, up in Solon there. Cool. Uh, uh, and just thinking about some of the different styles, uh, is there a big difference in timing on, on how long they'll take to brew? I'm thinking about like some of your stouts versus, or, or also anything that's barrel aged, assuming that's taking more time. But um, are there, I, it, it probably sounds like a really simplistic question, but uh, are, are there big differences in timing between uh, just starting a beer to getting it out to the public? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, I mean, I would say the majority of our beers are in a pretty similar timeline. I, I usually I expect most everything to be in and out of a fermenter in two weeks. Um, and, you know, it, it, that varies by brewery and kind of how their approach to, to finishing beers. But for us, we're pretty reliably two weeks on most of our, our everyday kind of regular beers. Um, the ones that really demand more time are, are like you said, uh, barrel aged uh, big beers. You know, if we make an imperial stout or a barley wine, yeah. I mean, in my mind, with those beers, I'm I'm looking at a year is is probably the soonest we're gonna it's gonna see the light of day. Um, and that's you know, those beers they definitely benefit from that extra time. So we've actually started a little bit with some of our big beers to let them. We'll condition them a little bit longer before they even go into the barrel. So they'll get some cold conditioning for a few weeks before we before we rack them into the barrel, and then we're usually expecting that barrel aging to last probably about a year. Okay, so so would Richard the whale fall in that category? Yeah, absolutely. So that's you know when you're talking about scheduling side of things, that makes a very interesting uh, conversation because you're trying to predict you know a year and a half out. So <laughs> uh, that's certainly challenging, but you know. Usually, when in doubt, just make a little extra beer, and uh, we'll find something to do with it. So, um, the other one, the other big one that kind of timeline-wise is the lagers. Um, we've started to produce a lot more lager here uh, at Big Grove in the last, I don't know, year, year and a half. Um, and a big part of that is uh, we purchased some some horizontal lager tanks recently. Um, we've it was kind of I call it our our late night Craigslist purchase, but. <laughs> It was, uh, I don't know, we were just talking about lager and like, how do we make more? Um, and lagers generally take a lot longer to ferment and to, and to condition. So we didn't want to tie up the, the regular fermenters here. Uh, so we started shopping for, for horizontal tanks to store them in. And we found, we found the right size tanks for a pretty good price. So we jumped on it. Um, and all of a sudden we, we were making a bunch of lager. Um, but what we do now with our lagers is, you know, they're usually in the fermenters that are, are, normal fermenters here for about two weeks um, and then after they've passed all the tests and everything and finished their fermentation we'll we'll rack them over to these horizontal lager tanks and i guess trying to draw a picture for people of what that is you know 
I, I imagine most people have seen a, a fermenter at a brewery and, and those would be kind of considered a vertical tank the way they operate. The horizontals are, you know, if you just picture that tank turned on its side, it's, uh, it's kind of like that. Uh, it's just a long tube. But we'll put them in those horizontals and let that lager, lager process last for honestly six to eight weeks. Um, and it's just kind of cold conditioning and, and settling in there. And then once, we, once we've tested them out of those tanks and decide they're ready to roll, uh, we'll bring them out and filter them, and then and then they're finished and, and packaged off at that point. Great, yeah. And I uh, just smiling, thinking about. Uh, I I tend to think of myself generally more stereotypically in an ale kind of category, but uh, you really enjoyed the uh, the Iowa City Lager. And uh, a friend of mine was giving me a hard time. Was I buying it because of, of the name? Just my my love of Iowa City, or but yeah. I I really in, in, enjoyed the the beer. It was like a perfect grilling beer. I was out. Uh, I was I was grilling some uh, food for the family, but really enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I'd say that's kind of the brewer's choice. Um, usually at the end of a day, end of a shift, yeah. that's uh, most of the brew staff will be grabbing a, an Iowa City Lager, and I right think. On. Kind of finds that that window of uh, refreshing, flavorful, but you know, drinks pretty pretty easy. So yeah. A uh, question for you too uh, regarding some collaboration. Some of the things that I I really appreciate about um, <clears throat> about Big Grove too is uh, kind of some of the social awareness collaboration. So I know it was it was a couple months ago. Uh, given the COVID situation, it almost feels like it was years ago. But you you uh, you did a beer with uh, the domestic violence intervention program. Yeah. Uh, and, and then brew and did also did fundraising for them. Uh, but I remember actually seeing pictures, uh, I, uh a friend of mine is, 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 uh, with the D- DVIP. And I, I remember seeing pictures where you actually brought them into the brewing process as well. Do you mind talking about that project at all? Yeah, sure. Um, that was something that really, uh, was the idea came from our graphic designer, uh, Katie Kiesewetter. Um, she, she was excited about kind of getting getting something going for uh, was it international women's day i believe was the the day that we yeah. were uh, working toward and then you know she came up with the dvip as, as a great kind of organization to work with for that and you know we find i've always found that the brewing process and, and bringing people into the brewery and the process is just it really it's kind of special. I mean, it's just, it's almost like cooking with someone, you know, it's, it, it has that same sort of feel um, where, you, you know, it's just, it's hands on. And it, when you get people involved like that, it just, it really can be special. So, um, you know, as the idea was coming together, it was like, well, let's, you know, Lincoln will, will run the brew up there just cause he's the, he's the gentleman who knows the system and, and can kind of make it happen. But, who can we invite to kind of come join him and, and take part in the brewing process for this project. And, and so it turned out great. I think uh, there was four or five uh, members from the DVIP that yeah. just sold and brewed and, and Katie was up there as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, nothing cooler than, than a project like that where you get to be a part of making the beer and then you see it in a can on the shelf and uh, you know, get to, to consume it as well. Thank you. Uh, a question I have for you, uh, as just as a head brewer and beers, you like, can you enjoy beer when you go out? <laughs> uh, or are you really always analyzing what's going on? I mean, can it, you just sit and relax and have, I mean, I'm sure you can enjoy it, but like, is it, is it relaxing or are you always analyzing what's going on? Uh, I, you know, yeah, there's always, it can't really shut it off completely, but I can quiet it. Um, <laughs> It's, it's interesting. It is funny. Cause you know, you get sit down at the table and like my family and friends, you know, maybe want my evaluation or something or, or I don't know. Sometimes I get this, you know, maybe my friend will be drinking a, a seltzer or something. They'll, they'll apologize to me for, and I was like, Hey, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's like that. whatever you want to, whatever makes you happy, you know, but I mean, yeah, it's, I guess I'm excited because after all these years and all, all the different beers and everything, like I still get excited about it. Like I still just, I love trying a new beer from a new brewery or, or, you know, I just, I don't know. I really enjoy craft beer and, and all that it offers. So I'm, I'm just excited to still have that joy about it and, and really enjoy it. Uh, you know, every aspect of it, even just ordering a beer at a, at a local bar and trying something new. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, and for me, the reason, a lot of my design friends, when, you know, it, we, we argue that w- when you get so deep in design, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to see things in the real world. Like you just see what, like, you're always, Oh, that's good. That's bad. And so just wondering about like, if you, yeah, if you're able to, to kind of ever relax, like you're, you're traveling, go to, go to another brewery. There's a quick, uh, do you put, do you put going to other craft breweries kind of on, almost like a business research <laughs> uh, yeah, when you I go to other towns? I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, that for many years, that was kind of, that uh, dictated our vacations a lot. My wife and I's vacations. Yeah. Where, you know, we choose a place. We're going to, I don't know, Santa Rosa. Or, you know, we're going to Northern California. I'd be like, okay, that's great. Um, but we're going to Russian River and we're going to Bear Republic. And like, yeah. you know, I would, I would kind of guide the vacation a little bit by the breweries we had to go see. but you know, time and time again, we had so many great experiences by doing that, that it was just, you know, it's still part of our vacations where we're looking for those breweries to go to. Um, But yeah, certainly um, there's a little R&D, a research and development uh, component now where, you know, be you're looking at how people do things or, or their, their setup, you know, their, or if, you know, if I'm at, I go to Portland uh, usually once a year for out for hop selection out in that area. Um, and I have some good friends out there, but going to those breweries and seeing what they're up to. Cause you know, a lot of times the West coast is uh, kind of working in a different realm than the Midwest. So always curious what's happening out there. It's a, it's a good way to kind of get exposed to new ingredients too. Um, if you go to a brewery and you have this beer and you're like, Oh, what is that flavor? And find some new hop that, you didn't know about or haven't worked with before. So when you're going to check, like you, you mentioned going to Portland to look at uh, or check on hops. Uh, what, what time of year is that usually when you're kind of making those decisions on, on hops? Well, the hop world is an interesting one. Um, you know, a lot of it's built on contracts. So like a lot of the hops that we use here at Big Grove were contracted for. Um, it's, there's so many kind of what you call proprietary hops now that, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you have to be careful. You build a beer around citra hops or something. And then if you, if it takes off and you can't get those citra hops, you're kind of you're right. in a lot of trouble. But, um, so that the harvest every year takes place in like usually September, um, mostly in September, a little bit in August and maybe a little bit after, but, um, we're contracting, you know, I've already contracted for this year's harvest and the, the main part of the main reason they're looking to do that is just to help the farmers out because right. the farmers it's a really it's a challenging industry because the farmers are trying to produce you know what the brewers want but there's just not really you can't look at numbers or yields or there's no way for the farmers to understand the brewers need without getting feedback from the brewers so they're looking for contracts so they can grow the right hops for what we need um, and then they're they're adapting as the brewing industry changes, which has been pretty rapid over the last decade or so. And yeah. uh, so they're always trying to, to be nimble with that. Um, but so, you know, like I said, I'm contracted through the end of this year, or I'm sorry for the harvest uh, in 2020 here. And then I'm starting to look at 2021 as well and trying to figure out one, you know, what are our brands doing? You know, how's, how's easy Eddie selling? How's arms race selling? What are hop needs looking like as we go into this harvest? What do I anticipate for potential growth next year? And then, you know, I'm going to start sketching out that, that 2021 harvest contract as well. Right. Yeah. And also I'm assuming like size of order too, right? Like as you said, with 40% increase in production capability, you know, keeping that in mind too. Yeah. And you know, that's what's, that's one of the trigger parts. Um, there's a few of these hops that are, that are still, they've, they've grown a lot in the acreage that's planted, but they still, haven't quite caught up to the industry demand. So like mosaic and citra um, are, are pretty limited. If you don't have them contracted, you can find them, you know, on the open market, but they're usually quite a bit more expensive. So yeah. that's another factor to it. Thanks. And one, one of the, if I'm getting the story right, but you know, please correct me. One, one of your new releases was queen mother. Yeah. And, that, and, 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 my understanding was that was also it was kind of a, a, a new hop or new style of hop that you were able to get a hold of and, and so a bit of an experiment 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, one of my favorite things about about hazy IPAs and and kind of this the current IPA world is that you know people, you know, customers and drinkers are kind of excited about the hop varietals as well. So it, it gives us as brewers uh, a really open platform to experiment with a lot of new hops and and work and just get to know them or, or try them out. But uh, that Queen Mother, uh, we used a couple of South African hops in that beer, um, Southern Star and African Queen. And South African hops, I don't know the whole history to it, but for several years, um, all of the plantings, all of the acreage planted over there was, was owned by uh, one company. And they didn't really allow those hops to go out to the open market or to craft brewers. So it was just kind of, it was controlled. And it was, I don't know, I want to say about three years ago where they, I don't know if that relationship changed or more farmers got in, but now those hops are kind of becoming available and they're not, there's not a lot of track record. Like I haven't seen a lot of breweries that have worked with them. Um, but we, we found a guy, um, he's actually, he works out of Denver, but he, he's a broker. Um, and so he's, he supplies us with a bunch of these different South African hops and just kind of a, a new, a new world of hops for us. So it's fun to experiment with. Cool. Uh, question for you, uh, regarding, um, kind of other, other, I'm just going back to the, the marketing a little bit, but I think another thing from an, kind of an Iowa pride thing about big Grove, I guess two, two things embedded here. Uh, you can't get big Grove outside of the state. Is that right? Correct. Is it, and, and is there, I have to imagine there's some tension or pressure to, to go beyond the borders. I mean, I think organizationally, we've certainly always liked just being an Iowa brewery and, and just, uh, you know, really building relationships here. And, and, you know, we, we're proud of Iowa and we, we would hope to make Iowa proud of us as well. Um, it is, uh, very tempting when you've got, you know, like the quad cities where you've right. got, like, you know, a couple a, a big population center on the other side of the river and you're like, man, we're right there. Like, but we don't have any plans right now to leave the state, but you know, always, always subject to change. So, and relate and related to kind of that Iowa pride, uh, one, one of my favorite cans that, that, uh, that you produced was, uh, the, uh, the tailwind, uh, for la and I know Ragbri didn't happen this year, but last year's Ragbri where I thought, you know, the, the name and the fit to the event was great. But I think my favorite touch was seeing all the, all the city stops on the can, uh, how does how does a, a collaboration like that come together? Uh, you know that was something the tailwind. It kind of uh, I think the there was a previous beer of of Ragbri, Their contract expired, and so that was coming to an end. And and the Ragbri team reached out uh, to Iowa breweries because they really wanted to have you know they wanted to have uh, an Iowa beer be the official beer of Ragbri. And so they reached out to, to us as one of those, um, and we were super excited about it. Um, it was something we wanted to be a part of, and and we we knew the can would be a huge element to it. We, it was a huge opportunity, really, to to kind of tie to Ragbri. And so that for that first year, you know, we wanted to we wanted to make it kind of have a collectible feel, and we really wanted it to be tied to the route, you know, of that year. So you've got, you know, you've got the official logo for, for that rack ride and then getting the towns on there. I mean, you know, any, any opportunity to connect with some of the smaller communities in Iowa is just, it's exciting and kind of fun. And our sales team loves it, getting out there and finding those, those cool bars in, in the smaller towns. So getting, getting them featured on the can was, uh, it, it just seemed like a cool opportunity to get that out there. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the backstory to that is, the, to get the painted cans like that, uh, like we did for Tailwind, you have to buy an entire truckload, which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so there was definitely some, uh, we were a little nervous about the project just because it was a brand new beer and a new relationship for us. And you know, we had to, we had to try and sell, I can't remember what it was, it was like 6,000 cases of Tailwind was kind of <laughs> the docket for us to move. And Fingers crossed, right? As yeah, it was making uh, that commitment. <laughs> but you know, jumping to this year, we were we were all set up to be to do uh, tailwind again for for rag ride this year, and obviously the ride got canceled. Um, and for for a minute, for briefly, we were going to cancel tailwind as well. And then uh, we kind of you know we kept thinking on it, and the, the sales team was like, "Well, you know, I think there's still people that will kind of 
would like to have something, you know, kind of ragbri. I don't know what the right phrase yeah. is, but something to kind of, you know, remember ragbri or think about ragbri during that time period. And and so we actually went ahead and, and put out Tailwind again this year, um, and they put together. It's a really cool label. I don't know if you've seen the new one this year, but they used. Uh, it's kind of inspired by one of the bridges um, over in Des Moines. Yeah, one of the heavy uh, traffic uh, bike trails over there so yeah with the dark background yeah exactly yep. and so you know I, I think there's we we saw more excitement for the tailwind this year than we expected uh, and i think it's just you know a lot of things are getting taken away from people this year and and so you know any kind of opportunity to to find some joy or some have some fun with with something that's not happening i think people are excited about that Thanks. Uh, question for you about kind of going back to learning your craft and almost mentorship, but uh, like where, where did, where did you really uh, learn, learn your craft? And then also what might have been some good advice that you received along the way? Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, it started, like I said, out in Fort Collins there where um, just kind of learning from those breweries from New Belgium and Odell and, and how they did their business, how they conducted their, their business. Um, you know, they were, they were both very community oriented breweries. Um, they're very quality oriented breweries. Um, and so that, you know, that was kind of the baseline for me. And then as, as I got into homebrewing, um, and kind of developed that knowledge, it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of, you know, out of the book learning and then also kind of just, uh, asking questions and, and, and bothering, you know, brewers and, and people in the industry to kind of figure some things out. Um, and then, you know, the next jump for me was when I, uh, when I got into the professional brewing with Big Grove, um, the previous head brewer, uh, Bill Heinrich had set up a great framework and was, was making some great beers. And so I kind of stepped in and, and, uh, the assistant, to Bill at that time, uh, who's still with us. He's, uh, Josh Seiler. Um, he kind of showed me how they were doing things up there and, and kind of showed me the professional way of brewing. Um, and then I was able to just kind of keep building off of that. And there's so much information available out there now through, you know, through forums and the web and like the brewing community is just so open and so helpful to each other that, you know, there's a lot of times where I'd, I'd meet, uh, brewers, or maybe I, you know, I knew some some people from Iowa City who had gone on to brewing careers, and just kind of reaching out and, and asking the questions that you come up with, and and learning from that. And you know, that's that's one of my favorite things about this industry, about this job, is just the opportunities to learn and and share information with people. It's just you know, it's infinite, and and it's a really fun part of of the craft brewing world. Thank um, you. There was, oh. sorry, there was a second component to that question. Oh, things you learned along the way. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot. I, one of the, one of the ones from my homebrewing days was we used to, we were really excited about bottle conditioning beers. And so we would bottle every single batch of beer. And like me and my buddy had, for a couple of years there, we were brewing I'll just say we were pushing the legal limit. You know, there's a limit of how much you're yeah. supposed to brew in a year. In a right. House. Yeah. <laughs> we were pushing that pretty hard uh, and we were bottling everything. Uh, just, it was, you know, it was easy to hand out to friends that way and share with people and enter competitions. But after, after a few years, I got back to kegging homebrew instead of bottling. And I don't know why we bottled so much beer. That was a lot <laughs> of extra work. <laughs> so, so stick with the kegs. Yeah. Uh, and then professionally, you know, there's been a lot of things. I mean, a lot of it's been kind of layout or equipment oriented at, at the production facility where it's tough. You know, the tough part, I think, for, for this facility is that it's grown a lot and you kind of have, you know, you have those plans for growth a little bit. But after a while, even your best kind of future plans just get blown up and, and you kind of have to rebuild. But right. I think sometimes this I mean that you gotta you gotta kind of clear the slate and start over is you just gotta know when to do that and not try and like make something that's not gonna work work I got when when you're working on a new beer uh, do you do you know right away if you have a winner or not like uh, um, and not I'm not saying that they're bad beers right I just but like oh this this is extra special do you know right away 
Um, usually, you know, so the process brew day, it's hard to tell. You're looking at a lot of numbers coming out of the brew house, but it can be, it's pretty difficult to tell. I mean, mostly you're looking at, um, you know, you know, we know our inputs pretty well as far as, you know, bittering and, and some of that looking at color a lot um, yeah. is what you might gain out of the brew house. And then you've got fermentation, like the, the, really the most active part of fermentation is usually about four days. So as that winds down, we call it day five is when you can really kind of start getting perspective on your beer. And for me, you know, I rely heavily on my nose um, early in the process. And usually if it smells really good or, or really intriguing, then um, I'm getting pretty jacked. I'm getting pretty pumped yeah. up beer. Because, um, yeah, the smell goes a long way. And it often, you know, it plays into the taste, of course. So um, it's, it can be hard to taste beers right out of the fermenter. There's, you know, there's a bunch of yeast in there, just a lot going on. The beer's warm, it's flat. So I rely on my nose and, and if it smells good after at day five, then I start getting excited. Right on. Andy, uh, I just wanted to, ch- if there are any topics we didn't cover that you thought we should cover when talking about creativity craft. I mean, you know, when you, we were talking about kind of generating beer ideas and, and some of the fun stuff there, and I just I want to make sure, you know, it's definitely a team effort. Um, uh, I, I certainly get more of the credit than, than I deserve, but there's a team, like my brew team, and, and even, you know, Big Rev organization. Like, a lot of our beer ideas and, and, and flavor concepts, you know, they're coming from everybody, everybody on the brew staff, and a lot of times from, you know, people in the kitchen or or, you know, maybe just uh, somebody in the organization who's got a, an idea or, or had a beer or, you know, whatever. And, and so a lot of this, it's a really, a, it's a collaborative effort, you know, even internally where it's, these ideas are generated from so many different directions. Thanks. And one question maybe I should have asked earlier, but one of the things that I mentioned, your, your location relative to downtown Iowa City, right? And and down, downtown has its own draw, but did it feel risky when you guys were first opening up? Because, uh, I mean, you, you guys have no, no problem getting people there now, but it, did it feel risky being kind of outside of downtown? Uh, I think <laughs> there was a lot of people. So when we came into this building, it, you know, it was an existing building. It was the UI surplus building for a long time and right. originally built as a lumber yard. But, you know, it's been here for, I don't know, I think about 50 years now. Um, and when you came and looked at the building and especially the backside, you know, by the, by the river over there where we were going to have kind of our customer space, it was, it was pretty rough. So uh, I don't think a lot of people saw the vision that, that Matt was seeing for that space. Um, and yeah, this whole, the, the whole neighborhood here was, you know, it was definitely just kind of an older neighborhood. So right. Um, it, yeah, there was, I remember contractors that were in here working and just the size of the building and then kind of the, you know, the shape it was in, a lot of them were like, how are you going to fill this place up? Like, are you going to be able to get people in here? And yeah, there's definitely, definitely some nerves about that, but it's, it's funny that you mentioned our proximity to downtown. I mean, it's closer than I think people realize. Um, yeah, I think if you walk it, it's like. 0.6 of a mile or something. I mean, it's under a mile. So yeah, a lot closer than you think. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, what we're, we're three years, a little over three years in, but this whole neighborhood has changed pretty dramatically in those three years. Um, they've got, you know, a whole new building to the south of us. And there's, I think there's four uh, large apartment buildings that are almost completed to the north of us. And then the city having completed the, the park back there, it just really kind of added to our, to the dynamic of our patio in our backyard. Um, yeah. Well, kudos to Matt was, then. Cause that's, I was thinking when you, like you said, when you look back, it seemed like kind of a weird location, but now with the new building, with development, with bike paths, with, and then the city park being complete, it's a, it's a gorgeous area back there. And now it all seems like, Oh yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Now it all kind of looks like it fits together. Like it was, yeah. But I, I, you know, what I remember a lot of is, you know, the brewery is on, on the Gilbert Street side of the building, which is, I, I call it the back side of the building, at least in relation to where the customers are at. Right. And so customers were always uh, parking, you know, every business you go to, you, you know, you park on the street side, enter on yeah. the street side of the building. That's just kind of the way it is, right? 
And so people would park on the backside way back here and they'd be walking around and looking for the entrance. And, you know, they'd usually run into a brewer or something and be like, no, you got to keep going. And people sometimes even were frustrated, like, what's going on? And it was always, my response was always like, oh, you'll understand when you get back there why we made you walk all the way around. But yeah, it was was a great vision from Matt and it it turned out great. Um, We actually just expanded our patio. Um, We doubled the size of our patio just because uh, we know it's a huge, huge draw for people this time of year. And so, you know, we thought, we were having trouble keeping the lawn alive anyway, so we thought we'd just uh, <laughs> there you go. the size of the patio and put some more tables out there. Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast, and uh, really appreciate you talking about your, your craft and uh, talking about the Big Grove team. This has been great. Yeah, you bet, Matt. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed chatting with you.